The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you follow along with me this morning as we read Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And all God's people said, Would you pray with me? Father, in the very best sense of the word, we are overwhelmed by you. We're overwhelmed at the realization of who you are awestruck as we just sang moments earlier the thought that every star that is you have breathed out and you have called them known them by name but at the same time father you have the greatest level of care and concern and compassion for us weak and feeble and sinful as we are. We're not just overwhelmed at the thought of who you are. We're not just overwhelmed by the realization of your might and your power and your majesty. We're overwhelmed at the waves of your mercy and your grace. The way you chase us down when we run. The fact that time after time, Father, you prove that you have more mercy than we have sin. The times when we come into this place barely able to stand, weakened from the battle, feeling as though there could never possibly be any place in your kingdom for wretches like us. And then we find you meeting us here with a smiling face. We're thankful for those times, Father, when we come to you in prayer and we don't know what to even say. We have nothing but grunts and groans and cries. And Father, you don't shame us in that. Instead, you send your spirit to help us. To speak with the words we would say if we could find them. 
Father, we're overwhelmed by the fact that we get to gather together and study your word together today. We get to see your glory in this word. That we get to be strengthened by this table. That we know no matter what else happens in the next 45 or so minutes, that you will be here. And that those who come in repentant faith, we will leave this place changed. So Father, I pray that you would guard my mind and my lips in the moments to come. I pray, Father, that you would have me to speak only the words which glorify you and build up this people. I pray that you would prepare our hearts as we look towards your son's table, that which he has purchased with his blood, that we would come in a worthy and right manner. That we would not eat and drink condemnation unto ourselves, but that we would be strengthened and encouraged and built up by what comes next. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to publicly express my gratitude to Pastor Kyle for bringing the Word of God to us over these last two weeks. As I'm sure most of you know, there is much more to this than just getting up on a Sunday morning and preaching a sermon. There are many, many hours of prayer and study and preparation that go into showing up in a place like this. And the reality is that Kyle and I did not just switch jobs for the week. Kyle prepared for this sermon. He stepped into the pulpit and he preached this sermon while fulfilling all of his other duties. Pastor Kyle filled or pulled double duty, and for that he should be honored. In addition to that, I want to thank you all for allowing me this short respite. This two weeks when I didn't have a sermon waiting for me at the end of the week. It was necessary for me, number one, so that I could decompress some from our two plus years in Mark's gospel. Number two, so that I could prepare my own heart for shifting to an epistle, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So I assure you that every hour, every free moment that I had during these last two weeks, it was spent in one of three ways. Either in personal study for my own edification. I will tell you that God dealt with me in a very meaningful way over these last two years, just in matters of personal holiness. My walk with him. What is my purpose in being a pastor and attempting to lead you people? Number two, I've read over and over and over again, meditated on and prayed over the book of Ephesians. And then thirdly, I spent some much needed time with my girls. So again, I thank you. I promise you, I'm completely sure of this. I promise you that these two weeks that you've given me of rest, these two weeks of respite that I had, they will pay dividends not only for my family but for this church in the months to come. So when we last gathered here together and I stood in this pulpit, I told you that before we began our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Ephesians, that we were going to sidetrack for a couple of weeks and we were going to look at a couple of different passages of Scripture, a couple of texts that I thought allowed us to focus on some things that we hadn't covered in Mark and that we won't be able to get to in the book of Ephesians. And I've got to be honest, I don't like this. Apparently, I'm a guy that needs to work verse by verse through books of the Bible. And anytime I deviate from that, I turn into just a mess. It's difficult. It's difficult to wake up on a Monday morning and determine, what am I going to teach this week? What passage am I going to preach? What, what do these people need to know? Instead of just 
trusting the word of God by the spirit of God to lead us. Now, don't get me wrong. I prayed about what we were going to teach this morning. I didn't just throw my Bible open and wonder where it was going to open up to. I do believe God's got a message for you, a timely message that will prepare you for coming to the table. But what I realized very quickly is I'm not built for this. I'm a verse-by-verse guy. I'm a a pick-a-book-and-go kind of guy. So we're starting Ephesians next week. I'm not doing this again. Again, don't be discouraged. God has a word for you this morning. But it was a miserable week for me. And I'm selfish enough to say we're going to do what's best for me, I suppose. So this morning, we're going to be turning to the, uh, to the end of Peter's second letter. That's going to be Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14. So let's go ahead and look at that passage together. I ask you to stand to your feet, please. The reverence to the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and to that day of eternity. Amen. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you help us to do what we cannot do on our own? Help us to hear and discern and understand your holy word, trusting that every word in it is for building us up, showing us who you are, to humbling us, and to encouraging us in our faith. Father, we trust you will do these things, for we pray them in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, when we left the Apostle Peter, he was at the very lowest spot imaginable in his life. You remember that he had sworn to Jesus that no matter what the other apostles did, he would never forsake him. No matter what the danger, even if he must die, that it would, there would be nothing that could drive him away from Jesus the Christ. And yet we know that just a matter of hours later, he was denying the Lord. Not once, not twice, but three times. He denied even knowing Jesus Christ, stricken by fear seeing what awaited Jesus, that he meant what he had said, that they were going to Jerusalem, that he might be arrested and tried and beaten and killed upon a cross. Seeing that this wasn't just hyperbole, but that Jesus really had come to lay down his life. Coming to the recognition that he meant what he said when he said to follow me, you must carry your own cross and follow me. Peter ran like a coward, just like all the rest. And yet, we remember the Lord's promise on that very same night. He told him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus interceded because that's what high priests do. Jesus had interceded. He had prayed on behalf of Peter. He had made certain that Peter's faith would not fail. 
That even though he stumbled, even though he fell for a moment, that he would turn. That he would turn and he would be used by God. He would not fall away in the end. You remember what happened to the man called Judas? Judas recognized his sin. Judas recognized his failure in betraying Jesus Christ. And his response to this sorrow, his response to the recognition that he had sinned against an innocent man was nothing short of despair as he went out and hung himself. But because of the intercession of Jesus Christ, because of the strengthening of God, this man called Peter, he would turn and he would be used in an absolutely magnificent way. We see this coming to pass on the day of Pentecost with the sending of the Holy Spirit. We see Peter standing out before the people in this very same city before a very similar Jewish crowd delivering the first sermon in the history of the church. It's there that he told the people that it was they who had crucified Jesus Christ. They had put the innocent man to death the holy and righteous son of God. He assured them that he had seen Jesus in in his resurrected body, that Jesus had in fact been raised, that death could not conquer him, that their most evil of plans had been used to the purpose and the glory of God. And then he boldly called every single one of them to turn from themselves, repent of their sin, and trust in this very same Jesus. Do you see the picture here of what God has done? He took this self-centered, cowardly man, and he turned him into a Christ-exalting preacher. A man so focused and consumed by the glory of God that he would willingly lay down his very life for the sake of this gospel. That others may come to to join with him in this eternal kingdom. To join with him in this following after Jesus Christ. So as we read these two New Testament letters that bear the name of the Apostle Peter, we, we can't help but see the massive effect that all of this had on him. As he comes and he's writing to persecuted Christians living some 30 years after this place, after this fact. These are men and women that surely were filled with the same levels of fear and doubt. Wondering if they're following after a lie perhaps. We know that many of them were, they were, conf- they were confused and they were frustrated and they were incredibly challenged by the fact that while they were trying to be obedient, while they were giving their lives to following after the Prince of Peace, they found in their life nothing, earth, nothing that looked like earthly peace. They found persecution and hatred and trial and suffering. And so we can can hear this, this this personal tone of experience in Peter's writing to them. And we should be encouraged by this. The fact that we can look backwards on Peter's life and we can see the way that God wove together all of his failures and all of his sin and all of his fears. He wove them all together that God could be glorified and that this man could be prepared to lead his people just like this. Dear friends, do you get frustrated at the fact that you're not fully sanctified yet? Do you ever look around at your life and say, how can this sin possibly be to God's glory and my good? How can it possibly be your will, God, that your people continue to carry on in sin like this? Dear friends, this is at least part of the answer. Do you understand? And so that day by day, we must continually come to him for sanctification. And so that day by day, we may never get it twisted. As each day brings with it each new trouble, as our our flesh continues to rear its head, we must continually come back to the source, to Jesus Christ our Lord, throwing ourselves upon that same gospel day after day after day and crying out, God, would you not leave me here? Well, at the same time, we can look to our other brothers and sisters as they struggle and we can come alongside them and encourage them. That's exactly what we see. He exhorts these men to beware of pride. Does a man have any experience with pride? He tells them the danger of pride. He promises them that God will exalt those. He will exalt those that come in humility. 
He tells them that God will overcome their weakness, that he is more faithful than they could ever imagine. He tells them to watch out because the devil is on the prowl seeking to devour one of them. And then he comforts them in their suffering. Dear friends, have you ever thought about the way that God uses your sin and your suffering that you can come alongside others? That you can weep with those who weep. You can mourn alongside those who mourn. But that you can assure them that God's not done yet. That you can stand before them as a living testimony to this. Glory to God, he didn't leave me as he found me. Glory to God, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't leave me in my sin and did not abandon me when I was so very faithless. So we see this tone of personal experience in Peter's writing and we recognize that Peter's theology, it wasn't academic. It was as real and living and personal and practical as anything you could ever imagine. He lived it. He was living it. You see, Peter hadn't arrived yet. Peter hadn't arrived in some ivory tower and he's looking out at the church and they're suffering and saying, listen, it's all gonna get better and then nothing but peace comes your way. He tells him you can have peace in the suffering. He tells them that you can have joy in the persecution, but he doesn't ever promise them, but this will end. He doesn't promise them your life will be spared. He doesn't promise them that you will be rich, that you will be healthy, that this world will fall down at your feet in praise. Because what we know is that perhaps a matter of months after this point, Peter would die. He'd be crucified upside down, not, not finding himself fit to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. And so, we know that the same Roman emperor, this one that is tormenting these people in Asia Minor to whom Peter is writing, we know that he will take Peter's life. And Peter seems to be very much aware of this. In the beginning of this letter, in the beginning of 2 Peter, he says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will be soon, and as the Lord, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these words. Peter knows that he's not long for this world. So we might think of this as his last will and testament, as any good spiritual father would do. He says, I've got to make certain that you hear these truths, that you have access to them, that you don't forget them, that you can come back to them time after time after time. When you find yourself persecuted and suffering and weak, wondering if Jesus has forsaken you, wondering if our promise is not true, I want you to be able to come back to these words and gain comfort from them, be strengthened and exhorted and challenged by them. So what Peter delivers to us here is, in his mind, the most critical thing. And what we find out as we read through this second letter, in his first letter, Peter talks a lot about, about the call to personal holiness, about the call to endure in the midst of suffering and, and, and how, to, how to be obedient in all of our relationships and make sure that God is honored in the way that we relate to those that persecute us, to those that have authority over us. As we get to the second letter, though, we find that there's another threat, perhaps an even greater threat than Nero's persecution, perhaps a greater threat from the threat that comes from the world that threatens us, that curses us, that mocks and scorns us. There's a threat from within the church. Peter tells us that there's unrighteous men who have begun to teach heresy. He has harsh words for them. He calls them blots and blemishes. You might also, trans, uh, might also uh, translate that as a defective stain. These men are a defective stain within the church. These false teachers, they're blaspheming God. They're making people doubt that Jesus Christ will actually return. They're denying Christ altogether. And as a result of this, they're giving themselves over to all manner of sensuality and sin. But even worse than this, they're enticing others to join them. You see, what they promise these men is freedom. 
They promised these men freedom and pleasures if they would just go after the desires of their flesh. Because if this world is all that there is, if this world is going to always continue on exactly as it is, then get what you can while the getting is good. Enjoy all that your flesh desires. Enjoy all the treasures and the pleasures that your neighbors are enjoying. Why should you miss out? They're enticing others to join them, and yet Peter makes clear that in fact what they're doing is they're delivering men over to slavery and corruption. So we can sense this great urgency that Peter has as he exhorts these men. Number one, to identify the false teachers. Number two, to stay the course, to not allow themselves to be caught up in such a thing. And I want you to notice as we work through this letter, I want you to notice the fact that Peter seems to make it clear to us that there is no such thing as standing still in the Christian life. There is no such thing as just merely holding our ground, that you're either moving forward, you're either striving, being alert and striving towards personal holiness, growing deeper in your commitment and your knowledge of the living Lord, or you're moving backwards. You risk becoming unstable. You risk being led, led away by false teachers just like this. And so he begins, one of the ways that he exhorts these men one of the ways he encourages them, one of the ways that he pushes them deeper into personal holiness is that he assures them that the day of the Lord is coming. He tells them that they must not be confused along with the rest of the world. You see, they have mistaken God's forbearance as an acceptance of sin or, or, or perhaps as if an indication that they are never going to have to stand before him in judgment. Isn't that the way the world, world around us lives? Is it the day of judgment is never coming? is that they will never answer for the sins and the evil that they commit in this life. So Peter tells these men that despite what feels like an eternity, despite what certainly to us feels like an eternity, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, but he's being patient. He's being patient because he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And no matter what you make of that verse, it's clear that he's saying that there's a time for repentance, that in God's patience, that in God's love for man, he is allowing us this time of salvation, as he will call it in this morning's text. A time of repentance, a time of salvation, a time for the word to be spread and for men to turn. He's waiting till the very last saint comes into the kingdom. It's only then that Jesus Christ will return, but we must not ever lose sight of the fact that he will return. So Peter says this final day, it will come like a thief in the night. He got this language from Jesus himself. You remember this, Jesus said that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, quickly, unexpectedly, when the world is least on guard for this thing coming, that he will come and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now the reality is that we find ourselves in the very same spot today, don't we? Jesus Christ has not yet returned. And if you thought men began to doubt that Jesus would come back three decades after his ascension, what about 2,000 years later? We look around at so many, even within the church, and they live as if Jesus is never going to come back. They live as if that day of judgment is never going to come. They live as if this world is all that there is. It's going to continue on forever and ever and ever. They continue to give themselves and their treasures and their attentions and their focus to things that are going to burn up in the end. So we find ourselves surrounded by men inside and out of the church that live exactly like men in Peter's day. Many of them even more open in their mockery and their scorn, acting as if we are fools to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, those doubts can seep into ourselves. There's, there's a phrase, FOMO, fear of missing out. If, if we're not careful, we get wrapped up in this fear of missing out, right? 
You see everyone around us living for today. You see everyone around us getting, getting rich and, and getting their hands on what they can and, and enjoying the, what we're told are the good gifts, the good pleasures of this world. And we're constantly putting off those pleasures. We're, we're constantly preaching to ourselves a gospel that says, no, the greater things are yet to come. That the things of this world are, are, are a vapor, a mist, a, a copy of the greater and the real and the lasting things. And so we're, we're consistently finding joy today in the promises of tomorrow. And if we're not careful, we look around us and we start to feel like fools. What's wrong with us? So we live in a very similar world to the one that Peter is preaching to. So we live in this in-between time, knowing that our salvation is secure, knowing that our eternity is guaranteed, but at times wondering, well, what are we supposed to do in between? What does it mean to live in light of Jesus coming? So apparently there's a couple of, there's a warning and there's a promise that Peter intends to come with regards to Jesus Christ, to living in light of the return of Jesus Christ. There's a warning for those that he calls the ungodly. If we're to trust his words, he says that at Jesus Christ's coming, it will be a day of fiery judgment and destruction for sinful and rebellious men and who are stained by their sin. There can be nothing but this in the presence of the infinitely holy God, can there? At the day of his coming, they must be destroyed. This is not annihilated. This is the eternal and unending wrath. This is what happens when unholy things come into contact with the holy. This is what happens when rebels stand before the righteous king of the universe. Not only that, but all the rest of creation as well. You see, we know that for those that are found, and this is the encouragement for us, for those that are found in righteousness, this of course isn't a righteousness of our own. No man can accomplish such a thing. Their own righteousness, it would make them worthy of the kingdom of God. It would make them worthy to be called children of God. There's only one righteousness that can get you into this kingdom. There's only one righteousness which will allow you to stand on this day, and it's the righteousness of Christ. It's his perfect life. It's on account of your union to him in faith. It's not your faith that makes you righteous. Do you understand? It's the fact that you're joined to the righteous one. It's that his righteousness is credited to your account. So that from the moment of your conversion, the God of the universe, he looks upon you as if you yourself were righteous. Again, this isn't just some seed of righteousness that Jesus plants in your life, and it's up to you to live it out so that you can then become righteous before God. It's his standing. So that those that are found like this, when Jesus Christ returns, we know, according to the promise of God, that we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The righteousness of God will cover the earth, and only the righteous of God will be able to live in this place. And we're reminded yet again that this earth is not fitted for eternal glory. As frustrated as you get with yourself, and your own sin, do you not feel the weight of sin all around you? Do you not look around you and say, this is not the way the world is supposed to be? We're reminded that with the fall of Adam, with that very first sin, that all of creation was thrust into corruption and chaos, decay and death, 
There's this world, this universe, and all of creation. It's groaning in and of itself, awaiting that day when Jesus Christ will return and all things will be made right as they should. This world and all that is stained by sin and corruption, it must be burned with fire. I don't know if this is literal fire. I think it's probably figurative and spiritual fire. But the point is, God is not destroying his creation. He is remaking it as it should be. He's creating a place in which his children can reign with his son for all eternity, enjoying pleasures that we could never imagine. Those are the promises. That's what we look forward to. See, not all men should look forward to the return of Jesus Christ in the same way. Some men should tremble, and they don't. Some of us should rejoice, and sadly, we don't. But he's saying this should be an encouragement to you, looking forward to this promise that this world will not always be where it is. You won't just be some man trying to live out a perfect righteousness in the presence of Christ amongst a broken world. The world will be perfect. It will be glorious. It will be spiritual. It will be fitted for an eternity of pleasures with Christ. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. But I do know that everything we enjoy in this world, this is just a taste of the greater things to come. It means that we are meant to be physical beings, spiritual beings, and physical bodies enjoying good physical gifts, food and drink and a hug from a loved one. That all the best things you love in this world, you don't have to assume that you lose them in eternity. You assume that they're heightened. You assume that they're greater. So that every time you sit down at a stake, every time you get a kiss from your child, every time you enjoy a beautiful song, you think, but I can't wait for the real thing. And you refuse to sell yourself out for the lesser thing. And so in light of all this, I take Peter's statement in verse 11 and I present it to you as a question. Peter makes a statement here. I present it to you as a question. I'm not going to ask Andrew if I'm allowed to do this, but I think I'm allowed to do this. He says, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, because this world will not continue as it is, because Jesus Christ will return, in light of these things, what sort of people ought you to be? Do you understand the question? You count yourself a Christian. You believe that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that he is your righteousness. You look forward to an eternity with him. In mere moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And at the conclusion of that supper, we will all exclaim, until he comes. You pray according to the Lord's pattern. Thy kingdom come. So what sort of life should you live? What sort of person should you be in light of his coming. You ever give any thought to this question? Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. The NIV says to make every effort. Christian, as you wait for the return of Jesus Christ, your Lord, it's the treasures and the pleasures and, and, and the flesh of this world is consistently crying out to you. As you recognize the fleeting nature of everything in this world, you must be diligent and eager and zealous to be found without spot or blemish, without fault and blameless. This would seem to parallel what we see in verse 11 where Peter says that we're to live lives of holiness and godliness. That's the aim. 
That's the goal. That's the target. That's what we're striving for. Holiness and godliness to be found without spot and without blemish. This is a picture of moral and spiritual purity. Being set apart from the world. Being set apart unto God. Reflecting the perfect and holy nature of God to his glory to the rest of his creation. This is being weird. This is what I pray for every Wednesday night whenever I pray for our youth and I say, dear God, make them weird. I mean this. Spotless and blameless and zealous to be found in godliness and holiness. Untouched by the stain of sin. Unaffected by the alluring siren song of this world. But beloved, I have to ask you, when was the last time you found yourself really concerned with such things in any meaningful way? I'm not talking about hating your sin. I'm not just talking about feeling some sense of shame for your guilt. I'm talking about an absolute zealousness for personal holiness. I'm talking about waking up each morning with a burning desire to walk this life without spot and without blemish. Peter says that if we believe that Jesus Christ is coming, this will be a consequence. This will be an effect. This will be an outworking of our trust in that. You say that you believe that Jesus Christ is coming. You pray for his coming. You long for his coming. You participate in his table. Do you live like you believe it? Are you giving yourself over? I'm not talking about perfection. No one achieves such a thing. I'm talking about the direction of your life. Again, that's what I said Peter's focus is in that. It's that you can't stand still in this life. You're either unstable, you're being led away by liars and deceitful men, or the desires of your own flesh, or you are charging hard. It's about the direction. It's about the movement. It's about the motion. It's about the pattern of your life. Is that what you see? That's a big part of what I was confronted with over these last three weeks. Have I given myself to knowing the things of God while never allowing them to in any meaningful way impact my day-to-day life? Am I satisfied? Am I satisfied with my golden ticket to heaven? And now as I wait in this in-between time, I just wait for him to usher me in there, giving no effort, no thought to personal and immediate holiness? You see, as we turn to the the first chapter of this letter, This seems to be Peter's focus. He's making clear because if we're not careful, we can fall into some type of legalistic or works-based salvation, believing, okay, well, so what you're saying is I've got to be holy, I've got to be blameless, I've got to be pure, I've got to be godly, and then I can earn access into this kingdom. But what we find in in kind of the the bookend to this letter, in the beginning, he, he talks about giving ourselves over. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. He's talking about faith and love and everything in between. Talking about godliness and holiness and purity and spotless and blemish. Walking like a child of God. But he says there, therefore, brothers, we skip down to verse 10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Do you understand? Confirm your calling and election. These are a confirmation. You earn nothing. You earn nothing in the kingdom of God. It's all a free gift of grace. 
It is all unmerited favor. It's all the power of God working in and through your life. And yet you confirm that calling. You confirm that election. You confirm that you are his. You confirm that you will dwell with him in eternal righteousness while today you live a holy life. Do you see it? And do you recognize that this is his point? This is the purpose. When we get to the first chapter of Ephesians, we're going to see that God chose us before, uh, before the foundations of the world, chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We recognize that Jesus Christ saves us right where we stand, but he doesn't leave you right where you stand. We go on in Ephesians verse five, chapter 5, verse 27. We read that he gave himself up, that he died. You ever meditated on this fact? That Jesus Christ died. He gave himself up for the church that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The bride of Jesus Christ can be nothing but holy and pure and blameless and without blemish, and he won't wait to eternity to start that process. Now, he doesn't bring us all the way there at the moment of conversion either. It's a process called sanctification. He says, day after day, I will move you from one degree of glory to another. I will constantly be working and molding and pruning and preparing you to be my glorious bride. When's the last time you thought, I can't wait for Jesus Christ to come back and find in me a precious and pure and blameless and spotless bride? I want to live a life of holiness, not so that others could marvel at me, not so that I can earn anything in the kingdom of God, but because he is so glorious and I long for his coming and I want so much to be with him, to please him, to honor him. One of the most wonderful things you could ever say about anyone in my family, in the history of my family, my dad's mother, my grandmother, anytime that she would go out, she would always fix her hair, put on real clothes, and put on a face of makeup. And I don't know if it was Amanda or, or who, what, somebody would ask her, Nita Mama, why do you always, every time you go to the grocery store, every, every time you go to check the mail, Every time you run down to the pharmacy, you fix your hair, you fix your face, you put on a dress. Why do you do this? And she said, because everywhere I know, go, people know that I am the bride of Bob Seal. And I want him to be honored. Do you live like that? I want people to know that I am the part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And I want him to be honored. So what does this look like? What does this look like? So we, we come to the moment of our salvation and by the grace of God and by the power of God, he reaches into your chest, just as he promised in, in, in the new covenant, that he reaches into your chest and he gives you a new heart, replaces your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh and he, he gives you new affections for Christ so that you come to him in faith. He opens your eyes so that you can see him as truly glorious and then you fall down on your face and in that moment, you are saved. In that moment, Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're as righteous as you will ever be before God. And then it's just up to us in our own powers and our own abilities and our own efforts then to walk in that holiness, to live up to the name that's given to us. It is not. That's the text that David read for us earlier. At the end of the first chapter of Colossians, we read that I toil, struggling with all his energy 
that he powerfully works in me. It is he who wills and who works in me. It's, it's God's working in you. Again, an evidence, an assurance that you are his, that he hasn't left you where you are. I, I don't know how this works, but I love this verse. I'm obsessed with this verse. I toil struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. I toil, I work, I labor, I strive with all of God's energy that God's working through me. Do you understand? I gotta speed up here. So the first question for you this morning is are you living like this? Are you diligent to be found at the Lord's coming spotless and blameless and pure and holy and godly? Or do you live as if this present life is all that there is? Do you live as if what you've received in Jesus Christ is just a golden ticket to heaven and the things of this life don't matter? Verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You see, back in that first chapter again, when, when, when Peter talks about all these, the, the, the love and the steadfastness and the faithfulness and the self-control and, and, and the brotherly love, he says that, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. You see, when you're walking like this, there's gonna be a fruitfulness to your life. God's going to bear fruit through your life. And one of those fruits, fruits, fruit, fruits, one of those fruits is going to be, he's going to use you to sow seeds of the gospel and you're gonna see others come to faith in him. This seems to match up with what he said back in verse nine. That God's patience in coming that this time that we live in, that we're to declare the time of salvation, not just a time to sit back and enjoy our own salvation, but to take that very same gospel out to the world and to call them to salvation through repentant faith. Do you understand? If God hadn't given us this time, if the Lord had returned in those first 30 years or any of the 1900 years that came after it, none of us would have been saved. So a result of this, an outpouring of this zealousness for holiness and godliness and a longing for his to re, him, him to return, you will view this as a time of salvation. It's an opportunity to share the gospel, trusting that by that very same power at work within you, God will save others. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Um, I really do have to, have to speed up here, but I think it's precious that he calls him his beloved brother Paul. We know that there was conflict between the two of them. We know that Paul confronted Peter to his face. But is this not a sign of spiritual maturity that you can be confronted in your sin even publicly and look to him and defer to him and call him your beloved brother? So apparently, he expects the people to know about it Paul's letters, and he's saying, Paul writes about these same things, and we know that he does. He talks about God's kindness to be an opportunity for repentance, that the purpose of his kindness is to lead men to repentance, that today is the day of salvation. So we know that Paul wrote about exactly these kind of things, but he goes on to say, there are some things in them, that's Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do all of the other scriptures. There's four things very quickly that you can glean from this sentence right here that is truly critical and amazing. Number one, you see that Peter recognizes Paul's writing as scripture. 
These are contemporaries. They're working at the same time. They probably died maybe even within months of each other, imprisoned almost simultaneously. They're working and they're teaching and they're striving and they're writing at the very same time. And yet Peter looks at Paul's writing even in that moment and he just says it like it's a known thing. He doesn't present the case. He doesn't make an argument like he does for other things. He just says, yeah, we all know Paul's writing is scripture. You see the confidence this should give us? He puts us on par with what the way they refer to the Old Testament, the words that Jesus calls the word of God. Those words that are breathed out by God, inspired by the Spirit. We can only assume that, Paul's, that Peter is recognizing that he himself is writing on par with this. We often wonder, what does this look like? We, we don't know, and it would be a waste of time today to try to really dive deeply into this. But the reality is, they recognize at the time, this is God's words, not mine. Paul would say that this is men carried along by the Spirit. These aren't the, the, the devices of men. These aren't my thoughts. These are the thoughts of God coming through me, through my personality. But secondly, you see that he says that some of these writings can be hard to understand. Please don't miss what a monumental statement this is. Scripture, particularly some of Paul's writing, can be difficult to understand. I've had a whole lot of conversations lately with people that are troubled by some of the ways that we interpret Scripture. And I welcome those conversations. When we get to the book of Ephesians, buddy, we're going to have a lot of them. I'm sure of that. And I welcome them. My door is open. Please. Please, for the millionth time, please come to me. I love these conversations more than you could ever imagine. I will give you all the time in the world. But the reality is, or the troubling thing is, a number of people, they will come to me and they will say things like, why can't you just read what it says? It's as plain as day. Why do you have to do all this digging and make things so complicated? Well, I don't know, but Peter says it's hard. So perhaps with all humility and gentleness, might I say, that the people that believe you can just read this word like you're reading a novel and all of a sudden it's going to make sense, maybe you never knew it. Not in any meaningful way, at least. Think about it. It's the apostle Peter. He walked with Christ been called and set apart by God. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit in his own writing. He lived in the same world as Paul. He spoke the same language as Paul. He came from the same culture as Paul. And we think that living 2,000 years later, having no understanding of the Greek language, having never lived in a Jewish culture, we're somehow just going to open it up and with a cursory reading, ba-bam, it makes sense. It took work and study and labor for Peter. So must it for you. I'm not poo-pooing your daily Bible reading. There is blessing to be had in merely sitting down and reading your Bible. But dear friends, if that's all you do, if you don't find yourself digging, studying, wrestling, being changed by the word, then you will never truly know it. But the third thing, You'll notice that Peter doesn't say that they are impossible to understand. He says, hard, difficult. You see, because just as many people that come to me and say, why can't you just read it? It's plain as day. It's right there. There's other people that say, why are you striving to understand the things of God? Maybe we're just not supposed to know what those words mean, predestined. Who can know what such a word means? Again, with all humility, love, and respect, the difficulty of Scripture does not give us a license to spiritual and intellectual laziness. 
The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 13, he says that everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. There's maturity that comes from moving on. You see, you see what happens is if we, when we come to the difficult doctrines in Scripture, we just always throw up our hands and say, well, who can know such a thing? Or we just give it a cursory glance and assume that we understand it. We find ourselves constantly going back to the milk, constantly going back to the text that we do understand. That's why I don't like picking what to preach because guess what? I'm going to try and preach something that makes sense and not something that makes me look like a fool. And so there's no growth that ever comes there. They're like babies stuck on milk. Babies drinking milk, precious. Grown-ups drinking milk, creepy. And so we do the work, trusting that there is an ability to know the word of God. Perspicuity is the fancy word. It means there's a, there's a clarity. There's an understanding. Not that all things are clear. Again, it takes hard work. Not that we'll ever rightly understand all things. There are some things that are hidden, that are secret, that are known only by God. Great mysteries. But dear friends, I submit to you that there is far more to be known in this word than any of us have ever grasped. And so we dig. We never arrive. This is the end of Peter's life. Not the beginning. 30 years. 30 years after he walked with the risen Christ. And he is just saying, this stuff's hard. Dear friends, gray hairs don't make you an expert in the scriptures. Gray hairs don't give you a license to say, I've learned all I need to learn. Just welcome me into heaven. Fourthly, and this is why I just harped on all that I've just harped on. We see here in verse 16 that misinterpretation of these difficult passages can lead to destruction. Peter says that they're ignorant and unstable men and they were twisting the scripture to their own destruction. I'm sure they thought they had it mastered. I'm sure they thought they were giving a friendly warning to their friends and yet he says that they will be destroyed. Do you understand how serious a matter this is? When you come to the living word of God, the way by which we know him, the power that the Holy Spirit uses to awaken you and to, and to sanctify you and to change you and to mold you. Do you understand that you're playing with fire? We can't afford just to gloss over it. We can't afford just not to do the work. We can't afford just to go along with whatever interpretation some man stands in the pulpit and delivers. That's why I challenge you time after time after time. Don't trust me. I don't say don't trust me because I'm a liar because I don't think I'm a liar. I say don't trust me because I might be deceived and there's too much at stake. I'm going to have to answer. You understand this? I'm going to have to answer for every word that I utter in this pulpit. And I'm begging you to love me enough to call me to account if I'm wrong. And I'm begging you to care enough and to take this warning severely enough that you guard your own hearts. That you understand that Bible study matters. Doctrine matters. Interpretation of Scripture, it matters because men have been led, led to dim, uh, damnation because of faulty interpretation. You therefore, brothers, beloved, excuse me, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. This is the concern. This is the concern. Remember, you're not just standing still. You're losing your own stability. You're not just holding the line. You're, you're at risk of losing your own stability. You're at risk of being carried away by lawless men. And so we must take care. We must be diligent. The Christian life is one of diligence and awareness and effort. The energy of God working in and through me. There's no such thing as a lazy Christianity. There's no such thing as a passive Christianity. It's aggressive. It's forward moving. It's hard charging. It's always on the lookout for dangers. 
saying you must look out. And one of the ways that he says that you must look out, and that's where I'm going to finish because I'm out of time. This is really supposed to be the whole thrust of my text. The reason I chose this text was verse 18, and I'm not even going to preach it. But verse 18, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what he says at the very beginning of this. At the very beginning of his letter, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, your defense against all of these things that I've just said is to grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is this the knowledge about Jesus Christ? Yes, in part. We can't call on one that we don't know, that we've not heard of, that we're not aware of. We must know certain things about Jesus Christ. Surely you appreciate this after two years in Mark's gospel. You call on the one that you know, but there's a more intimate sense to knowing. Jesus says in, in John chapter 17 that eternal life is to know God and his son Jesus Christ. Paul also says, Paul says in, in um, Philippians 3, I think, that he comes to know the Lord through his suffering. You go deeper in communion. You see more of him. You grow in dependence. You know God more. You know Christ more as you walk through suffering on his account. But then there's this phrase, and grow in grace. What does it mean to grow in grace? Isn't grace a free gift of God? Isn't grace the unmerited favor of God? Isn't grace something that you can't deserve? Doesn't, doesn't the Holy Spirit, didn't Jesus say in John chapter 3 that the Spirit of God blows where it wills and no one knows where it's coming from or where it's going or when it's going to pop up? Yes, yes, yes. And yet Peter can say, grow, this is a command, grow in grace. Just as the author of Hebrews can say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's talking here about prayer in part. But there's this phrase. This is what kicked off this entire sermon. This is what led me to Peter's gospel. I used the phrase, or it came up somewhere else, ordinary means of grace. Most of you have probably never heard that term because I pulled a pretty broad swath of you, and most of you went, ordinary and grace don't seem to go together. And yet, what we seem to find in Scripture is that there are these gifts that God has given us, like prayer, like studying the Word of God, like the gathering together of the saints, like baptism, and like communion. These means, ordinary does not mean plain. Ordinary does not mean subpar. Ordinary does not mean average. Ordinary means ongoing and regular and reliable means by which the people of God come in faith with confidence, expecting that God will meet me here and I will be strengthened. He will impart his grace into my life. Grace takes all different forms, dear friends. Saving grace, strengthening grace, encouraging grace, sometimes just the common grace of everyday life. The grace of God poured into your life, and he says, here are fountains where you may come and you may trust that I will meet you here. Now, we don't fall into the Roman Catholicism mindset that somehow it's in the stuff, it's in the ordinances, or it's in the pastor who imparts it. That's why you serve your families in this place. But it's that the Lord of the universe has said, you can trust that there is a fountain of grace to be had here for any who come in saving faith, any who come in repentant faith, any who come in confidence, any who come with absolute dependence upon Christ. You can come here and you will know that there is a fountain of grace to be had. That's why every week when we come to the Lord's Supper, I tell you, this is for sinners, so come. But there's so many men, they play hide and seek with God. You notice that the early church, I don't know, we're going along, it's okay. You notice that the early church they had, seen, they had some real mountaintop moments, right? 
Come on, Peter, James, and John, they had been on a literal mountain and seen the, resurrect, uh, the, the glorified Jesus Christ. They had been there on the mountain and watched Jesus ascend to heaven. And yet, what does it say that they gave themselves over to? To the study of the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They knew that this daily grace, these daily um, disciplines, this ordinary, ongoing grace in their life, they knew that that was what was going to sustain them. You can't only live for the mountaintop moments. Will he meet you on some mountaintops? Absolutely. He will meet you in the prison cells. He will meet you in the depths of despair. He will meet you in the courtroom. He will meet you in the hospital room. He will meet you on the ball field. He will meet you in your truck. But dear friends, he said, you come here. And you can trust. In the olden days, whenever men found a fountain, an underground fountain or a river or a pool somewhere, you know what they did? They built cities around it. They said, there's water here. There's water here. We'd be fools to go set up somewhere else because here's the water. Jesus says, here's the water. Here's the water. Here's the water. Here's the water. And so many men, they wonder why their lives are going dry. They wonder why there's a spiritual dryness. They wonder why they're not growing. They wonder why they feel like they're being led away because they're not taking advantage of the ordinary means. That's why my heart breaks for so many men that don't gather for us in, in, in corporate worship because this is a place that what we traditionally call the ordinary means, this is where they're most enjoyed. The fellowship of the saints, the prayer, the study of the word, communion, observance of baptism, your own baptism, all of these things come together perfectly here as we build each other up. I pray that you come expectantly this morning. I pray that you recognize that God's grace awaits those who come in repentant faith, that you can trust that you will be strengthened. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, for the, uh, the assurance that it's not based on our performance or our conduct or any of the rest, that any goodness we do in this life are nothing but a, uh, nothing but a reflection of the work that you have done in and through us. So, Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts now to come expectantly, that we could meet you here at this table, that we could be strengthened and changed. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.